Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you missed any of my talk radio breakfast show, don't worry. We've put some of the punchiest bits of this morning's show into a bite-sized podcast. The Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. Enjoy. Right now, let's talk to Ruth Davies, who's president of the National Association of Head Teachers and uh, head teacher of uh, Wahana uh, Lloyd Primary School in Swansea. Good morning to you, Ruth. Good morning. Good morning. Well, of course, I mean, this is a, you're, you're in Wales, of course, and, and Wales has had yes. a, a, a rethink on the masks policy. I mean, I mean, I think an awful lot of people right now, including a lot of head teachers, would struggle to know what the English policy is on uh, face masks. What is it in Wales today? Well, in, in Wales, it is pretty, it's not that different to, to England. We, we, we're faced with a scenario where it is ultimately being left to school leaders to decide uh, who wears them, where they wear them, and when they require to wear them. We don't think this is a fair approach, but we also don't think it's a safe approach. We need to have a, a national perspective on this so that school, otherwise I we believe it will lead to a mixed economy with different schools doing different things and undertaking different measures. Um, a risk is either a risk or it's not a risk. And if it is a risk, we need to be drawing on scientific evidence and advice, not individual perspective and opinion. Yeah, I'm with you all the way. It was very, very clear the chief medical officer and indeed the deputy chief medical officer, Chris Whitty and Jenny Harris, who I think have been very reassuring to all of us uh, during, for England, certainly for uh, during this whole pandemic, uh, made it very clear that they thought it was simply not necessary uh, for children in schools, primary or, or secondary, to wear masks at all. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon in, in Scotland uh, decided to say that uh, in communal areas they should wear masks. Uh, the, the, the government in England has said... You know, the, they won't wear masks, that's it. And now they've said it's going to be something that's going to be, um, I say, up to the discretion of head teachers. This, of course, a change came four days after the World Health Organization changed their advice almost a week ago, last Friday. It's a very confusing picture. You're, a, I mean, not just president of this association of head teachers, but a head teacher yourself. What you're saying, you would like to be told what is the best, latest medical advice? And, and, and then I'll do that rather than yes. having to, as someone who's an expert in education but not health, having to try and make that call yourself. Absolutely. I mean, the, the medical officer is very clear that in, in, in England, in areas of lockdown, then the, the face coverings should be used. But then it, just, it actually says that, we, that uh, the government is not recommending face coverings uh, in a general education settings. We'll allow, they're allowing um, discretion to school leaders. We don't want discretion. We want absolute clarity. Further down, it, it goes through some of the risks that are associated with, with with mask wearing itself. Now, as a school leader, I need to know whether those risks outweigh the other risks. 
I can't be left to make that decision on an ad hoc basis. Yeah. It's not fair to, to children. It's not safe for parents. Uh, but there's also a big worry, and I put this to the Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, yesterday, that actually there's going to be a lot of pressure from some parents, the ones who haven't ventured out of their homes, who want to, to send their children to school only wearing a hazmat suit, uh, pretending they're walking on the, the moon rather than going to their classroom, um, uh, and, and putting pressure on head teachers, saying, look, if my child gets sick, you, Miss Davies, you're the one who's going to be responsible. And we've had uh, some uh, rather well-known uh, TV presenters talking uh, and radio presenters talking about people... Uh, you know, if if you uh, if if one child dies at school, you know you've got their blood on your hands. You're a murderer. Um, that's a lot of pressure on head teachers who are not experts in this field. Are, are you getting pressure from from parents? Because one of the things I do think is that the parents who are most anxious about this will be the ones shouting loudest. Whereas I think the majority of parents will agree with me. We are quite happy to send our kids in. Mm-hmm. We will trust that the government's advice is correct. We will trust the medical advice is correct, and we trust the head teachers to do the right thing. And yes. Some of our children may get poorly, but that is just a risk we're going to have to take. But I, I imagine we're not the ones who are constantly emailing and calling head teachers about that. No, I think you're absolutely right to highlight the anxiety that will understandably be amongst the parents at the moment. Uh, families have experienced enormously different ex- uh, experiences through through lockdown and of lockdown, and they need to be reassured that coming back to school is not just right, but it's a safe thing to do. Now, it's not going to be risk-free. We've never said we're going to be able to eliminate the risks, but we are part of a national programme of risk reduction, and so that we need to be drawing on the very best advice and, and information, and only the government has that. They have the specialist advisors. They must be taking the ultimate decision. This is a pandemic. This isn't about which reading book we'll introduce next year. This is about how we're going to keep children and their families and the wider communities safe. And I think in all of this, I was listening to you you, uh, earlier, uh, the person who was on earlier, we share the ambition to get these children back to school. Schools need to be prioritised. We absolutely understand the critical role they play as a centre part of communities. These children need to be back in school and parents need and have the right to ask, please assure me that my children are safe. And we can do that as school leaders if we are if we are leading from a national perspective and not individual perspective and opinion. And are you planning to bring back all your kids full time? Because the government, uh, certainly in the UK, said, look, it's very, it's very clear. Every child, primary school, secondary school, back in the classroom for the full school day, every day, end of story. A number of schools, though, have said, well, we're going to have to have shorter days. We're going to have to have at least one day a week, some other days where kids are leaving at lunchtime. I'm not quite sure how that works for an awful lot of parents. Maybe they can handle it as secondary schools. But is there any is there any justification for that? Well, you're right that there's an, a new norm has been written and schools aren't returning to, to what we once knew some time ago, any time in the near future. But the ambition is to get all our children back to school. They're still entitled to the full teaching time. And I know myself and my colleagues have been working really hard over the summer to make arrangements within the school so that their entitlement to the full teaching timetable is adhered to and that their entitlement is, is met. So, yes, that is our ambition. Now, what the autumn holds for us, who knows? You know, will there be local lockdowns? Will there be another national lockdown? So we are making as many plans as possible to um, accommodate the flexible needs as different communities um, respond differently to the the pandemic as it either moves away from us or grows over the winter. We have to have arrangements that are flexible to meet the unknown because I don't think we've ever been going into a school year 
with so much uncertainty ahead of us. I mean, indeed, we still don't even know. And I was talking to the Education Secretary yesterday about how we're going to be dealing with the GCSEs and the A-levels next year. Um, Again, they're they're not that far away. Um, Let's also just talk, if we can, about some of the politics here. I don't know how much you want to get involved in that because uh, uh, a lot of uh, school heads are quite wary of this. But uh, we've had the blaming of the head of Ofqual, the exams regulator, Sally Collier, quit on Tuesday, apparently by mutual agreement. Uh, And now we've seen Jonathan Slater, the uh, chief uh, civil servant at the Department for Education, being sacked uh, by the Prime Minister uh, over the handling of the exams uh, uh, fiasco. Um, Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, is still in his job. There's a lot of pressure, even from Tory backbenchers, over his role in this. Who do you blame? Well, we we know that um, that we warned the government back in the, the winter that if we weren't moving towards... Um, a fairer system, we would end up with a brutally unfair standardisation process, which is what happened. And then, as you rightly point out, that what followed on was a, a, was indeed a fiasco. Um, it, in terms of the blame game, we just want to look ahead to next year, where you rightly point out, I can't see anything being that different next year. In fact, it possibly could be worse. If some children have had schooling and others haven't, then we could be faced with an even more unfair prospect, uh, uh, prospect for our A-level and GCSE candidates. But generally speaking, we feel it's not for the NHT to comment on the individual comings and goings of civil servants. Um, Our experience is that civil servants have been working incredibly hard to get things right during this pandemic. Our civil service is impartial and professional and, you know, prepared to handle the difficult issues in good faith. And we hope that the events of the last 24 hours will not serve to road trust in the department at time when it's needed most. Indeed. Um, and mutant algorithms, is that fundamentally to blame? That's well, what the Prime Minister said yesterday to visit to a school. It smacks to me of a nothing to do with me, Gav. Well, as far as I'm concerned, it's happened on Boris Johnson's watch. We warned the government that they were heading, as I said, for a brutally unfair standardisation process. And we need to be looking ahead now, not next March, or April, we can't be wringing our hands again in next July and August. We need to be thinking now of the national moderation model that is needed to ensure that our students get the very best outcomes that they as they deserve next summer. Ruth Davies, head teacher and also president of the National Association of Head Teachers. Thank you very much. Talk Radio Breakfast with Julia Hartley Brewer and The Times. Be well informed. Matthew Hancock, the Health Secretary, has announced this morning uh, new payments uh, to people who are forced to self-isolate in uh, lockdown areas. It's being trialled in the northwest of the country uh, right now. Of course, uh, the likes of Andy Burnham, the Greater Manchester Mayor, has uh, called for this. Uh, And basically, it's only aimed at low-income earners, but they will be entitled if you test positive... And you have to isolate uh, for 10 days. You get £132 if you're on a low income. If your contacts then have to isolate for 14 days, even though they've not tested positive, they'll be paid £182 for those 14 days. It's a total of, get crazy people, £13 a day. Uh, So is that enough to actually encourage people to make sure they do get tested and that they do actually self-isolate if they are a risk to others? Let's talk to Steve McCabe. He's a Labour MP. He's also a member of the Work and Pension Select Committee. Good morning to you, Steve. Good morning. I mean, any payment is better than nothing. And this is something that a lot of Labour MPs have been calling for, uh, and indeed the Labour Greater Manchester Mayor. But um, is the £13 a day enough to make the difference for somebody who's on low income, maybe a zero hours job, or or just uh, only gets paid if they turn up on the day, to actually take those 10 or 14 days off work? 
Well, I doubt it. I mean, I think it was um, the health secretary himself who said he couldn't live on that money. So uh, I, I doubt very much that uh, if the purpose is to try and make sure that people do isolate because they're going to work uh, for financial reasons, I doubt it will be that effective. Um, no, and that's the thing. And it's all very well, isn't it? Everyone's saying that people should do the right thing. And I can remember debating this with Matt Hancock, the health secretary, way God. We're oh. looking back at February and March when they were talking about how it's very important that people uh, who suspect they may be ill should self-isolate. You know, And again, that was at a time when you couldn't get a test um, uh, early on. At least now someone can get a test, uh, whether they've got the symptoms or not. Um, but the reality is, um, you know, people simply can't afford to do the right thing, whether they are on, even many people on higher incomes will say, well, yeah, but I, you know, I, I I can't afford to not be paid for two weeks. There are very few people in this country who've got the sort of savings where they can just go, I'm not ill, I might possibly be ill, but for the sake of everyone else, I'm just going to not be able to pay my mortgage this week. Well, I mean, I think that's the problem with this thing. You know, there's been months and months to have sorted out some sort of scheme. Suddenly this appears in the last uh, a few hours. Uh, and it's going to be a trial, which I don't think starts until September. It starts next so, Tuesday, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, how many of us are going to make it work? I suppose with the same success of everything else they've come up with at the last minute, uh, I, I think the chances are this may turn out to be another bit of sticking plaster that isn't very effective. Well, this is it. I mean, we know that the big concern at the moment is that people are actually avoiding getting tested in the first place because they're so worried they're going to have to, to isolate and, and lose pay. Yeah, well, I mean, that's it. So this thing only works, as I understand it, if you can produce a, a, a proper test and trace uh, certificate that says that uh, you've been tested and you've got the condition, and indeed you've got to produce uh, bank statements as well. Well, I mean, I don't know what the administrative nightmare in this yeah. Is going to be how you produce that while you're self-isolating. I'm not entirely when sure. Well, you probably need that money there and then. And it's interesting, isn't it? You don't seem to have to produce that much of uh, information to get some of these huge sums of money being handed out to businesses. Uh, Steve McCabe, uh, Labour MP, member of the Work and Pension Select Committee. Thank you for that. Talk Radio Breakfast with Julia Hartley-Brewer and The Times. Know your times. Listen, sit down, people, because I don't want you to, you know, spill your cereal or anything, or, or, or crash while you're driving. Because this is very exciting stuff. We're going to find out uh, who the next leader of the Liberal Democrats is. They're going to elect their fourth leader in just five years, and we're going to find out who that is today. Is it going to be the acting leader, former Energy Secretary Ed Davey? or the party's education spokeswoman, Leila Moran. Well, let's talk about this with a former leader of the Liberal Democrats, Sir Vince Cable. Good morning to you. Good morning. Are you as excited as the rest of the nation? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely overwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> you sound it. You sound it. Who's going to win? No, there is, a, there is a... You know, we haven't had a leader since the general election. The party has clearly a lot of rebuilding to do after a very bad general election, and being isolated from attention publicity for all those months. So, yeah, but it's for the party, it's a big step. And uh, I think I, which either of them win, actually, will be will be good. Um, Who do you think is going to win, out. though? Come on. Uh, I, I haven't backed either of them. I would have thought the odds were somewhat on a Davy, but um, it could be quite close. 
It could be quite close. I mean, it's interesting that he's been, uh, he, I mean, a far bigger figure. He's actually served in government, did alongside you uh, when you were business secretary in the coalition government. Um, and, uh, and and yet he does seem to be the front runner. Will that mean a little bit more of the same of the Liberal Democrats? In which case, uh, is that a worry? Bearing in mind the party's only polling at 6% right now, gone from the heady days of um, Nick Clegg's leadership uh, when we were look, talking, you know, the mid-20s, you know, I agree with Nick and all of that in that election um at one point the Tories uh, you know you up in the coalition with the Tories 57 MPs um now down to was it 11 at the last count yeah well I, I came into parliament 20 years ago on one of those waves of recovery that was the Paddy Ashdown era and I think it's not unrealistic to think that if there is a swing of opinion against this government and uh, Labour are not seen as quite as frightening, um, that the Lib Dems in that context will recover in that kind of way. But, you know, we have had peaks of support in the past. I mean, in, in many ways, it was the sort of Charles Kennedy era, the Iraq war. I mean, that was when, in a way, morale and, and optimism was at its highest. But even when I was leader, which was a very difficult time, we uh, had a big breakthrough in local government, got up to the biggest ever gains in local government elections we'd ever had, 700-odd gains just over a year ago, and uh, got up to 20% in the polls. So, you know, the, 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 there is a potential there. The, the, yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly uh, the, the role that the Liberal Democrats has played in the past. I mean, obviously, the kingmakers back in 2010 for David Cameron um, has certainly been considerable. But you've got paid a penalty for that. To a certain extent, I thought rather unfairly, uh, actually. But do you think it was the right policy looking back to December under Joe Swinson, the former uh, leader, um, for the campaign to be, well, A, so much about Joe Swinson uh, and B, basically entirely based on we are going to overturn the Brexit referendum. Being anti-Brexit was the Liberal Democrats seeing, um, but didn't actually result in the votes that uh, you perhaps thought there were there. No, there were some bad mistakes made in that election campaign. We had a you know, very thorough inquest into it all, and, and there was an open acknowledgement that Bad judgments were made. We should never have run with this revoke campaign and continued to campaign for a uh, referendum on the outcome of the negotiations. Anyway, that's water under the bridge. Uh, we're now going to have a new leader and make a fresh start. And it isn't going to be about Brexit. It'll be about a much wider agenda. Well, I mean, that, that would certainly be welcome for people like me. But um, how is Joe Swinson doing now? now you, you've uh, you were, had a long and illustrious career long before you became party leader. Um, Joe Swinson, much younger, um, uh, not perhaps well known to any, any, anyone outside immediate Westminster circles before she became uh, Lib Dem leader. She has completely disappeared uh, since the December general election result. What's she doing now? Do you know? Well, I have been in touch with her, and she, she has a young family, and she's developing um, another career, uh, which is quite right. I mean, she is a, you know, an admirable and resilient individual, but, but taking a massive defeat like that and losing your seat on top of it, indeed in her case for the second time, is a big blow and, you know, it requires a lot of sort of character strength to come back from that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in terms of uh, the, the, the key policy you'd be looking at in this broad agenda that you're hoping whoever the next party leader is, Ed Davies, say is the favourite, or but even if it's Leila Moran, um, would, would any of those policies include apparently what Leila Moran has just been endorsing this week, uh, votes for children at 12? I know your, your party supports votes at 16, but votes at 12? 
Um, that wouldn't be my preferred policy. Uh, but I, I, you know, I think votes at 16 is absolutely right and overdue. I mean, we, we, you know, the electorate does have a heavy bias to the older generation, of which I'm definitely one. Um, and, you know, bringing in teenagers, mid-teenagers, seems absolutely right. It's happened in Scotland uh, and it has added seriousness to the election not the opposite so you know guts at 16 is something we should definitely be campaigning for but not that would go much younger than that indeed all right then so it's cable lovely to speak to you uh, he sounds as excited as the rest of us about that leadership contest thanks for listening to the julia hartley brewer daily if you liked what you heard please subscribe and give me a good review and don't forget to catch me on the talk radio breakfast show every weekday from 6 30 until 10 Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.